reflecting upon your word and what you do and how you interact with us as your people. I pray that my preparations would fall soft on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So uh, three sermons in one, what a treat. Um, First one, I guess I'd call uh, P.T. Barnum and Job, P.T. Barnum and Job. I appreciate the historical figure P.T. Barnum, okay, he lived in the 1800s during the time of Abraham Lincoln. Barnum was an entrepreneur. Some of you may have heard of him. They did a recent movie, The Greatest Showman. It was based upon what he accomplished. Barnum was a successful marketer who was driven in his work to entertain people, to show them amazing spectacles, bizarre and delightful things. This is a trading world, Barnum wrote. This is a trading world, and men, women, and children who cannot live on gravity alone need something to satisfy their gayer, lighter moods and ours. And he who ministers to this want is in a business established by the author of our nature. And so... In some respect, he found his purpose in God's will. He for sure gave lip service to God, but I'm not certain as to where he stood with Jesus Christ. And that's not the reason I bring him up this morning. I bring up P.T. Barnum because of something that happened to him. Barnum got his start when he purchased this museum in New York City. It was a five-story marble structure filled with stuffed animals, waxwork figures, and other conventional museum exhibits. But he didn't leave it like that. Barnum took the museum and injected into it his gumption his humbug, his, his showmanship. He rapidly transformed the museum from the drab and normal into a carnival, a carnival of human curiosities, dramatic theatricals, beauty contests, and other sensational attractions. And, and he would travel the world over to secure items for his P.T. Barnum American Museum. Dead things or living didn't matter as long as it captured people's curiosity. His first successful exhibit in the museum, successful exhibit, was the Fiji Mermaid. It was this dead carcass which had seemingly a human head topping the finned body of of a fish. Of course, 
it was found out later to be a fake. And Barnum had no trouble with that. Among the genuine curiosities, genuine curiosities were Chang and Eng, Siamese twins connected by a ligament below their breastbones. It was, however, Charles Stratton, a man only 25 inches tall, who was discovered by Barnum that proved to be his most profitable exhibit. Ballyhooing Stratton as General Tom Thumb, which is a name you've probably heard, reference, Barnum sold 20 million tickets to the museum. After being received by U.S. President Abraham Lincoln, Barnum and Tom Thumb enjoyed a triumphal tour abroad, during which Thumb gave a command performance before Queen Victoria. Barnum's museum received 82 million visitors, among them Henry and William James, Charles Dickens, Edward VI, then as Prince of Wales, they came to see the extravaganza. And as I was reading my first Barnum biography, of which I have a few, I was pretty sure I wanted to go to New York City. Nothing draws me with a desire to go to New York City, but I kind of wanted to go and just see the building, even if it's something different today, which, of course, it would have been. But I so appreciated what I was reading about this guy and his ingenuity, his entrepreneurship, and what he had all accomplished. I just thought, if I could just see the building, I could say, there it is. And walk around and have people wondering, what are you doing here, just looking at the building? But I kept reading to discover that the museum caught fire and burned and was destroyed. No. No. What a loss. What a waste. How discouraging. But Barnum, he stuck to his knitting, and he renovated and then rebuilt. Thank goodness. But it happened a second time. Fire destroyed his work again. He decided after the second calamity to take the show on the road in the form of circus, and he called it Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth. And this is where Barnum and today's message come together. It raises the question of purpose. Why are you here upon God's green earth? Why do you exist? What has God made you to do? If your life's work burns to the ground, 
How will you respond? Let me suggest, this life you live, it's not yours to claim. You exist for Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You exist for Jesus. You were created through him as well as all things which were created. He owns you. And Jesus upholds the universe. If your life's work burns down, then be sure the Son of God has a reason for it. You must simply start over and stick to your knitting. Just be sure you live to obey and love him. That's your only concern. This is our grand duty. No matter the circumstance, no matter the people and things given to you, he is to be your reason. It's as the parable says in Matthew 25. If the master entrusts you with five talents, then you go to make five more. If he entrusts you with only two talents, then double those. He is the master, we are his servants, and your only desire should be to enter into the joy of your master. Some people don't live that way at all. They are self-seekers. Actually, we all struggle with that a little. Self-seeking. Consider God's servant Job. There was a faithful man who, who understood his existence, and yet Job, he lost so much. It reminds me of P.T. Barnum. Listen. <coughs> Excuse me. Job 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one of his, uh, in each one, sorry, on each, of each one on his day. 
and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Today, you would speak of Job in billionaire terms. And we know that Job lost everything, materially speaking, and his dear children and servants and animals too, if you know the story. If you don't know the story, you need to read the story. His life work was destroyed. But what did Job do? Well, after healing and mourning, he went on. He continued to live faithfully to love and obey God. He stuck to his knitting as the most important thing. Job said, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And we see how God restores to Job more than he previously lost. It comes at the end of the story, Job chapter 42, beginning in verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted, comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. Now listen. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the, one, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So, brothers and sisters, yours is to be faithful to Jesus Christ, faithful in the little things, and God will make you, make you responsible for more. That's how it works. Steward the two talents or the five. Whatever it is he gives you. Whatever he entrusts to you, for it all belongs to him. Your life is to care for his stuff. None of life is to be about you as the goal. God's glory 
is the goal. You might wonder at that. If it's not about me, then why did he make me different from the next guy? What particular purpose do I serve? The answer is that your purpose is to bring glory, God the glory, as a mom and a dad, as a salesman and teacher or carpenter and barber to faithfully steward yourself and your things for your master who is the heir of all of it. It brings me to my second sermon. And it's based upon that one line I read from Job just a second ago. It says this, Job 42, 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. God brought the evil upon Job. That's an interesting word, evil. Because we we typically tend to think, I do at least, that there is a sinister being behind evil. If evil was performed, then it was performed by a sinner or Satan or a devil, right? Right? Yet here, evil appears to include all the calamity Job suffered. And the text says that the Lord is the one who brought it upon Job. Certainly, Satan's hand was involved in the adversity, according to Job chapter 1. However, I think we can conclude that not all bad things or evil things are to be blamed on Satan. The Hebrew word in Job 42.11 is haraha, which is translated the evil. But an acceptable cinnamon is to translate haraha as the adversity. In other words, evil here could also be called adversity. And that makes me think immediately of the theologian Horace Bushnell, who wrote a book back in the 1800s called, listen, Moral Use of Dark Things. It's a wonderful book. And you can get it. And you may want to, in my, my last little sermon, you can get it as one of those reproduced historical books. Pretty reasonable. Anyway, throughout his book, Bushnell demonstrates how God uses dark things, adverse things, for good moral purposes. 
And those dark things could include things like bitter cold, bad government, physical danger, plague and pestilence, pain, oblivion, darkness, etc. Bushnell argues God utilizes all of these in order to extract benefit by them. This makes sense. When you read a passage like Romans 8, 18 through 30, that passage begins with Paul's advice. What does Paul tell the Roman Christians? I consider, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, Paul says, what are those but dark things, difficult, evil things like pain and death and hunger and tyranny and persecution, storm, isolation, and the rest? Some dark things are directly related to people committing sin. You do something wicked, bad things happen to you. Some things are related to your sin. Other dark things, however, are indirectly related to sin because they are built upon God's curses, brought on mankind's sin in general, a.k.a. the fallen world. This in itself, okay, should caution us against assuming, against assuming when a tornado hits someone's house, it is a direct result of that man's adultery. However, we also must understand that God curses sin, and so it is reasonable to conclude that a person, a family, or nation that shakes its fist toward God might lose an arm. Whatever the case, these evil things affect us. Indeed, they can become lifelong impediments. Here's a thought. Your parents may have scarred you by their sins or some form of discipline discipline or lack of discipline while you grew up. But God planted you under their care, didn't he? It was your life's path. You did not decide your parents. God did. He has a reason. And so what do you do with some of those dark things? You learn to love God and enjoy him. You refuse to do the wrong and choose to do the right. After all, you do not, ex- you do not exist for you. You exist for him. And the Lord has every intention to use those dark things, even done by others, for your moral benefit. 
And that's the direction Paul's Roman passage takes. In verse 28, he writes, And we know, and we know that for what that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, including then especially the sufferings he mentioned back in verse 18. Certainly some evil things you bring on yourself. If you go home and drink yourself silly every night, that is an evil thing as well as it creates evil for your family members and perhaps your employer and co-workers and neighbor. That is a dark thing within your control. So that's on you. And you can name your self-inflicted sin of choice, okay? It's not just drunkenness, be it gossip, stubbornness, greed, lust, disrespect for authority figures, slothfulness, and on and on. These are all evils that produce evil in your life and upon others. Your sin is not committed with, without dark consequences. But this does not describe the evil Job suffered. It was not to do with his sin. God had other reasons, good reasons for Job. Job falls under the category we should all hope to fall under, suffering evil as a test. It is suffering evil according to the purposes recorded by the Apostle James, who wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. My last word on dark things. According to God's wonderfully sovereign purposes, and according to the needs of his kingdom, he may want you to suffer based upon the decisions of others. He may even want you to die. It's still good for you. Third sermon. Some of you won't like this. Jesus repeatedly refers to reading Scripture while he taught about the kingdom of God. He assumes over and again that people who are trying to understand his Father's will would read the Bible. Three quick references, Mark 12, 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? Matthew 21, 16, and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Luke 6, 3, and Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Mm -hmm. The reading of Scripture appears imperative. Have you not read? 
Have you never read? Have you not even read? I could go on and on and on with references, but you get the point. The reading of Scripture is the way God's people learn about God and about God's will. Without Scripture, we are without hope. We have no clue. You may say, you may wonder, but wasn't Jesus speaking to religious leaders, the educated, while he said those things about reading? Often he was. After all, it was the religious leaders, the educated, that were the ones with access to documents. Not all people had the advantage. And it's true that there were hardly any books to be read for most of human history. There there were parchments and scrolls, but they were scarce. And God's people had to hear them read in the synagogue and other places. So the person who says, I'm not a reader, has a lot of history behind him and could make the argument that centuries of people did not read books as if they were as if they were now permitted by God to leave the Bible and books and reading for others to read to them. Many do this, not necessarily with that argument for those reasons, but many do this. They say, I'm not a reader. They have decided to rely on other people who do read to lead them into the most important things of life. And I suppose a person doesn't have to read. He can remain semi-literate. But in essence, he's chosen to escape his responsibility given by privilege of living in the 21st century. That person is arguing for the right to be undereducated, like one of those deprived people from antiquity, a person before the Middle Ages. Listen, we are post-Reformation people, post-Reformation, books and tracts and treaties have gone out in mass ever since the printing press was invented. In fact, citizens of the Reformation, because these things were getting into their hands, became so well educated after reading that they required a much stronger and well-educated clergy. They wouldn't put up with anything less. Every man, woman, and child are today given access to the Word of God, historically beyond compare. We carry it around in our pocket, on our phones, for crying out loud. I mean, and we spend a lot of time on those devices, don't we? But if you don't have a Bible, you please let me know. We'll get you three of them. And as for other books, they are a dime a dozen. They're 
everywhere. And we're regularly filling our own church library with credible books of Christian thinkers, all for you to make yourself and your loved ones better by reading. One of the United States founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, said, a free press wasn't enough. A free press wasn't enough to guarantee a healthy democracy. He wrote in 1816 to Charles Yancey, a a prominent Virginia legislator, where the press is free and every man able to read, all is safe. You wonder how the church in America has become liberalized and ineffectual? I suggest it's because congregants do not read the scripture for themselves and have gone a couple generations unable to hold their trained professional clergy accountable. Congregants have long told themselves, Pastor, Pastor's got all the book learning. We best trust him. And we sink, we sink as a civilization. Let me ask you, have you learned how to drive a car? Why did you go and do that? There are plenty of people who could have taken you places. Years ago, I recall how some wives, okay, did not get their driver's license, but waited upon their husbands or or grown children or friends to take them places and pick things up for the household. I'm not condemning them. Most of us, if we're of age, have learned how to drive because we realize the importance of getting around to places. We decided we could be more effective without always depending on others to take us here and there. And that is so true. So we took some classes to learn how and applied for our license. And the more we drove, what? The better we got at it. I suggest to you today that reading is more important than driving. If I have to choose between the two, there's no question that I will keep reading. And Tracy and Zach and everybody else can drive for me. And I know, I thank God for audiobooks that you can hear and think about. But they don't cater well to reflection, deeper thought and and note-taking like a book in your hands does. If you need to get off the dime on this, start by listening to books. Go ahead. If you'll only bite off short articles, short articles to read at first, that's okay for now. Or maybe a chapter or two a day of the Bible, okay, I'm committing myself to doing this, good. But you must practice it and increase Increase your reading. The the church needs Christians who can think. Christians who can read and lead rather than to only hear and follow and be tossed around by the wind.
Let us pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that these uh, sermonettes fell right on your people, that your spirit and your word would affect a genuine and lasting change in all of us.